which is a key idea I'm trying to transmit uh, in the paper. And uh, it ties into this notion of cruising with which I conclude the paper. Um, so in less than a decade, mobile phones have become part and parcel of everyday life throughout most of, well, most of the world, but certainly most of Saharan Africa. And um, in many places, it, it has left this permanent mark. Oh, this is not working. Um, it's left this, I just have a couple of slides, it's only pictures, but it's left a permanent mark on, on the landscape. Um, and uh, for many, the phone has become an invaluable tool in the navigation of everyday life. Now, crucial to the enthusiastic uptake, I argue, is the part the phone plays in addressing social contradictions, at times by revealing them, uh, but more often by concealing them. And a comment made by Innocencio, a young Mozambican man, illustrates this well. When I asked his thoughts for about the, <coughs> on the recent spread of mobile phones, he said, you know, many, many people who own fancy phones sleep on the floor, but if houses were made out of glass, these people would have gotten beds long ago. So Innocencio's remark highlights the tensions that exist between display and disguise and the debates these tensions generate in a context of uncertainty and growing disparity like the one found in, in post-war, post-socialist Mozambique, where everyday life involves seeking a balance between displaying enough without revealing too much, between trying to access uh, social status, deflecting envy, while embellishing reality often through concealment. And what I'm interested in are the ways in which young people juggle with these tensions in their everyday lives. In the paper, I argue that telecommunication helps address social contradictions in novel ways by opening up a space within which individuals can engage in various pursuits more discreetly. My broader aim is to examine how practices of secrecy, so this idea of playing with facades, provides individuals with the means to engage with the wider world. So I situate phone practices in relation to everyday secrecy practices, uh, including the reading and sweeping of tracks left in the sand, um, as well as um, the erection of tall fences. And this is going to make sense, at least I hope. Um, so the paper is based on field work <coughs> I've conducted in uh, southern Mozambique, in uh, Iyamban, which is a small <coughs> provincial capital of about 60,000 inhabitants. I worked mainly with young people, so young men and women in their early 20s. Um, and my research was based more specifically in a peri-urban neighborhood known as Liberdad, which means uh, freedom in Portuguese. And so I resided uh, in this neighborhood for 18 months. And I'll give you, this is a bit complicated, but uh, this is coming from the city center, what we know that looks like. Okay. And now, as one enters the, the, the neighborhood, um, diverging from this main road, there are um, mazes formed by tall fences that delineate the different households. And this is an example of that. So most of the houses are made out of local material, and um, uh, the majority of the, the the families rely on petty trade, urban agriculture, and social networks to make ends meet. 
Now, in conversation with the Liberdad residents, I often heard life being described as a battle requiring particular skills, experiences, and visions, sorry, or more succinctly as hinging on one's vision, which is um, a Portuguese word that could be imperfectly translated as vision. Individuals are understood to possess and develop varying degrees of vision, and some are seen as lacking it altogether. But one with vision is one with the capacity to interpret, manage, and master the opacity of the city. It's one who sees through others' attempt at concealment while also playing on the visions of others. Vision is also an ambivalent ability that can be harnessed for constructive or destructive ends. Now, one develops vision through life experiences. Um, for example, even during um, Portuguese colonial rule, a man who hadn't traveled to South Africa uh, to work in the mines was considered as a narrow-minded, uh, ignorant provincial. So the idea was that, of course, you would travel, you would come back with money, but also you would come back with knowledge and experience. Um, and now today, well, in urban contexts, uh, migrant labor is somewhat stigmatized. So young people have, um, have to look elsewhere to develop vision. Um, and this includes education, involvement with foreigners, as well as consumption of alcohol and marijuana. Um, so like hunters, Liberdad residents, or at least those with Bizan, have a finely tuned sensory awareness and they follow each other's comings and goings by reading tracks left in the sand. I should mention, as you can see on the picture, in Liberdad there's practically sand everywhere. Now, they can identify footprints of family members, neighbors, and other acquaintances, and in fact, uh, young people will go out of their way to secure a special and unique pair of shoes as the pair of shoes that then practically becomes part of their identity um, <laughs> as other people will be able to identify them as they, they move about in, in the neighborhood. Footprints are also seen as precious repositories of information. Those left in the sand by the night's activities are read before being swept away at sunrise when the neighborhood wakes up to the rhythmic droning sound of stiff brooms moving sand around. Reading, sweeping is repeated as people come and go throughout the day. And following a robbery, for example, victims collect suspicious footprints found at the scene by scooping sand, which is then brought to um, ritual specialists for investigation. There is also, according to the circumstances, uh, great care taken not to leave incriminating footsteps behind. So Vizal enables one to read not only footprints, but also the broader social environment. It also provides the inspiration on how to inhabit, escape, or move within this environment. And in my attempt to capture and make sense of everyday lived experiences of young adults in Liberdad, I, I build on the concept of social navigation. Now, navigation has been used as a metaphor in reference to the ways in which actors engage with landscape. Um, we can think about Pierre Bourdieu's work or um, even Alfred Jell's work. But more recently, uh, Henrik Vig has put forth a theory of social navigation that builds on the dynamism inherent in Jell's model, but invests it with a phenomenological sensibility à la de Certeau. And for Vig, if navigation is performed in concrete environments, like the practice of reading and sweeping tracks left in the sand, Actors also navigate uh, networks and events. 
So the idea of social navigation goes beyond the physical environment, and it also transcends the immediate by factoring in the, the imagined and the future. In Vig's words, a theory of social navigation is designed to examine the ways in which agents seek to draw and actualize their life trajectories in order to increase their social possibilities and life chances in a shifting and volatile social environment." End of quote. So, social navigation also accounts for the articulation of a double movement, the movement of individuals in an environment also in motion, and this is where the, the seafaring register um, is quite potent, I think. So, in a way, Vizan in Liberdad is part and parcel of social navigation. Or more precisely, it's the cunning required for a successful social navigation in the Liberdad context. And in recent years, the phone has become a vital cog in these processes. So let me illustrate this idea by introducing the Macuvelli family. Uh, the Macuvelli live on one of the small hills of Liberdad, and like all yards in the neighborhood, theirs is kept impeccably clean and swept every day at sunrise. Maizinha, the mother, who's now in her 50s, works at the orphanage in the center of town and supplements her meager income with food she grows in a nearby field after coming home from work in afternoons. She lives with her three younger children, João, Tomé, and Taninha. The family faces severe economic hardship and depending on the time of the month, often live off one meal per day. Both in the early 20s, the two brothers have yet to find regular employment despite holding secondary school diplomas. Tomé gets occasional painting contracts and also looks after the sound system of an uncle living in Portugal. Joan, for his part, has no trade but is very agile at getting small sums of money and things from people. He also does a bit of hustling, selling stolen items for others who are not as well connected. And many in the, in the neighborhood say that he has maning vision, which is like saying he has exceptional vision. Uh, both brothers describe themselves as not doing anything, and they spend their days sitting around at home or at the local bar uh, with other young men who share their circumstances. Both also dedicate considerable energy to money um, and money to the pursuit of romance and use their phone to better manage these different activities. Like other young women her age, um, Taninha, their 19-year-old sister, wakes up at the crack of dawn to sweep the yard before heading for school. She devotes her afternoons to household chores, namely fetching water, uh, the public tap down the road, cooking, and when she remembers, watering the plants. She sometimes braids hair to get pocket money, but has problems getting clients as she's renowned for stealing clothes off other people's clothesline and is therefore not very popular. Shortly before I met her, Tanina started hanging out at a nearby bar to watch the Brazilian soap operas that run every evening. And before long, before long she got into the habit of sleeping out and returning home only the following day. At first, her brothers were infuriated, and they warned that if she carried on behaving this way, she would never marry. Tomé tried to educate her by beating her, but to no avail. Tanina carried on going out at night. Now, João, the, old, the younger brother, uh, once mentioned that his sister, another sister, who also used to do the same when she was still living with them, but that, and these are his words, at least she had the decency to come back in time to sweep the yard, which means at least she had the decency to come back before sunrise, so before anyone could notice. Um, 
And also, she always cooked a nice breakfast for everyone. He described Peninha in contrast <coughs> as lacking design. Now, the arrival of mobile phones, and at the time they were all phone owners, didn't radically transform the lives of the Machiavelli, although many things have changed since this snapshot was taken. But the phone has helped them make their lives run more smoothly. <coughs> and I'll be qualifying this claim later, but um, broadly speaking, young people use mobile phones to navigate their way through two different, albeit overlapping, spheres. On the one hand, the spread of mobile phones create business opportunities. It facilitates the circulation of remittances and so on. And this is the more visible expected sphere um, that young people navigate with their phones. But on the other hand, um, the phone is also used to navigate another sphere uh, that ideally remains under the radar. Mobile phone communication opens up a realm of interaction within which secretive activities can be coordinated more discreetly. And this is really the sphere I'm interested in in this paper. In a context with, where privacy is scarce, for reasons I'll detail below, and where most people have passed from no phone to mobile phone, telecommunication creates a space that allows one to better maneuver networks while transcending the scrutiny of partners, family members, and neighbors. Mobile phone communication thus participates in redrawing experiences and understanding of space, not only in terms of space-time compression, so not only in terms of bridging distances, but also in relation to the expansion of social attitudes of movement through the creation of these new spaces. Um, and just to, to give a very vivid example, Fakir, another secondary school student, um, and core informant of mine summed up these transformations nicely when he said, before when I wanted to talk to a girl I liked, I would risk getting beaten by her brothers or her boyfriend. Now I simply phone her. Um, I had a slide up here. Um, so, again, because I'm, I'm working with people who had never experienced telecommunication, a mobile phone opens up these, these new possibilities. So now I want to turn to display and disguise dynamics within the post-war economy and the way mobile phones straddle these two conflicting practices as an imperfect technology of control and evasion. As others have argued, mobile phones act as a conspicuous proof of membership to what my young informants like to call the globalized world. In the last few years, handsets have become readily available and tend to be relatively affordable. Also, the thriving tourism industry uh, in the nearby coastal areas means that a number of phones are left behind by unwary tourists and injected into the local pool of goods that petty crime steers up further. Handsets are also highly visible and audible features of the urban environment. And although phones are sometimes tucked away in a pocket or in the folds of the Capulana, Saron, uh, they can also be seen cradled in brasiers, bulging out of vests, uh, or dangling from a cord and worn like a necklace. Handsets index socioeconomic standing, and young people are very knowledgeable <laughs> of the different models and of their value in the shops or on the streets. And phone practices also enable one to display social competence and acquire some symbolic capital. 
uh, phone model permitting ringtones are carefully chosen and updated to impress. There are, however, some who prefer to keep their phone on silent in order to evade the scrutiny of others, especially of boyfriends or girlfriends who might inquire about incoming text messages or phone calls. And this is a theme I'll develop further below. Given the precarious financial situation in which many find themselves, earning a phone is therefore quite significant, as young adults in Yinyamban tend to have more to hide than to display. When we compare Inyamban with other cities in the region, um, what's striking is the low level of entrepreneurialism. And the, the main reason for that, usually, that people give is lack of capital. Um, but reflexive residents suggest that it's actually also due to Bitonga pride. And the Bitonga are the, the main inhabitants of, of the city. Uh, that it's Bitonga pride that quells commercial initiatives. A Bitonga prefers to stay at home without money than to go out in the streets to do a low-status job, usually goes the same. And this concern about being seen, Sarvisto, uh, is a, a recurrent theme of, of discussion as young adults worry about the impact their livelihoods are going to have on their, on their reputation. In fact, when one digs a little deeper, one finds rather complex, albeit volatile, sexual and criminal networks that can arguably be described as manifestations of entrepreneurialism. But an entrepreneurialism that's deliberately kept hidden, not only because of its illegal nature, but also due to concerns about maintaining appearances. And this is where the phone comes <coughs> in as a technology of dissimulation. Most of my male informants and a few of my female ones have recourse to petty crime every now and then. A number are also involved to varying degrees in the informal sexual economy in which they exchange sexual services for material gain. And I suggest that youth involvement in such activities is symptomatic not only of limited access to formal employment, although this is definitely a factor, um, but also reflects local notions of respect and pride that are being redefined in the post-socialist, post-war context. What's more, if individuals have more to hide, because of these involvements, privacy has concomitantly become increasingly hard to come by in the post-war economy. Older residents recall a time when land in the neighborhood was so abundant that you couldn't even see your neighbor. And this was before the 1980s, 1990s, when um, most peri-urban neighborhoods uh, in, in Mozambique absorbed many of the, the people displaced by the war. And so now as a result in Liberdad, but in other peri-urban neighborhoods as well, people live in close proximity, land has become scarce and expensive, and daily life is spent outdoors under the gaze of neighbors and passersby. So if surveillance in the 1980s was intimately linked to a specific political agenda, um, and just briefly, this was the time when Prelimo adopted Marxism-Leninism, became highly paranoid, and implemented complex um, surveillance structures. Surveillance today remains linked to suspicion, distrust, and attempts to play on inequalities. But there are obviously several ways to evade one's fascination with the neighbor's life. In addition to reading and sweeping tracks left in the sand, the erection of tall fences, which are often around six feet tall, um, 
And I became quite fascinated with these fence just because as soon as a household manages to have enough money to build the fence, this is what they do, and these fences are quite impressive. Um, <coughs> so they're built out of palm leaves and reeds, and they're described as protective measures. They dissuade thieves, lovers, witches from physically entering the property. And they also conceal, however imperfectly, possessions along with daughters and wives um, that spend most of their time inside the confines of the yard. At the same time, the erection of a tall fence is also an important act of display as the owner of the property shows the community that he or she uh, has the resources not only to purchase the material but also to mobilize the, the workforce needed to erect the fence. Now, if fences block the external gaze, to some extent at least, because they, they start rotting quite rapidly, um, they also prevent those inside from seeing what's going on outside. And for the women who spend a large part of their time within the confines of the yard, uh, watching neighbors and passers-by is described as a welcome form of entertainment. So in a sense, the building of fences could be uh, understood as an essentially masculine attempt at concealment, which relates to the, the control of women. <laughs> Some also use the phone as a digital leash in an attempt to control their partner's sexuality. Um, now, the fact that it's easy to lie on the phone is not lost on anyone. And many have desi designed complementary strategies to, in the hopes of turning the phone into a more efficient tool of control. And I'll just give an example. Um, my neighbor at the time, Samuel, was often kept away from home because of his job, but he was very concerned about his wife's activities during his absence. So he would randomly ring her at night, and to make sure that she was really at home, he would get her to wake up their son and get him to say a few words on the phone. Uh, so in this case, telecommunication does appear to facilitate the control of individuals, but as I show below, and this is what I'm more interested in, women are also using mobile phones and mobile phone communication precisely to transcend this control. Um, <coughs> to start, I should mention that freedom of movement tends to vary along gender lines, as well as in accordance with changes in the political economy. In Liberdad, women have little freedom of movement and are expected to justify their comings and goings to the male members of their household. Uh, simply put, control over the circulation of women is linked to control over female sexuality. And men, for their part, can roam around as they please, although they might be met by an angry wife if they venture home too late. There is, however, a sense that in recent years, the movement of individuals, especially that of women, has slipped away from male contro control. And an image that often comes up in, in local narratives is that of uh, young women and children escaping from the windows at night. And what's quite bizarre is that very few houses in Liberdad actually have windows, uh, but it's uh, something that comes up uh, quite regularly. A movement in southern Mozambique has historically been regulated by a combination of technologies of control. And from the 19th century until 1960, when it was abolished, the indigenato regulated the lives of Mozambicans. And this is a Portuguese policy um, designed to control mainly um, 
labor as uh, South Af um, Mozambique acted as the labor reserve for neighboring South Africa. Following independence, population control became a major, a major concern for Frelimo's centralizing socialist project. And in rural areas, Frelimo attempted to round up in communal villages those living in dispersed settlements. And the idea was to facilitate access to service, but services, but also to better control the population. And these, these policies were met with varying degrees of resistance. Frelimo also adopted various policies specifically targeted at young people in an attempt to purge urban centers of unemployed youth, for example. Um, it set up this, this uh, program of re-education camps in, in the Nyasa province. Um, but the state also gave youth an active role in the realization of the socialist project by mobilizing many through the Youth League um, and by encouraging them as well to spy on their parents and report any anti-Filimo activity uh, or discourse. And such vigilante measures were designed to promote Filimo support and address the threat of political traitors at the local level. But Filimo's fight against what it called the internal enemy was soon compounded when the countryside became the scene of a protracted civil war. And I won't go into the details of this war, but um, by the late 1980s, many people living in rural areas had fled to urban centers like Nyamban and like I mentioned earlier, <coughs> in search of protection. Following the signature of the peace accords in 1992, some returned to where they'd come from, but many decided to, to remain in the cities or in the outskirts of the cities. Uh, they often ha didn't have much to return to as houses had been destroyed, uh, fields were overgrown, and animals had been killed. And this place added pressure on urban centers where residents were already juggling with limited employment opportunities and the rising cost of living. So forced resettlement with villagization and following wartime insecurity provoked a reshuffling of traditional hierarchies. But the war also significantly contributed to the dissolution of local level uh, structures of control because it, overmined, uh, it undermined sorry, the material base on which authority rests by stripping individuals of their means of production. What's more, due to displacement and war casualties, many of the individuals responsible of exerting control were simply no longer present. And in Liberdad, this is reflected today by the importance of women-headed households. In these households, the eldest son usually acts as the authority figure but as the Machiavelli example and so many others um, make clear, many are still studying and most lack the means to back up their authority. So in line with concerns about the unregulated circulation of individuals, many <coughs> recalled an also distant past in which courtship also was a highly mediated and socially regulated affair. And until recently, opportunities for young men and women to meet and flirt were relatively limited. Young men would hunt women um, by hanging out in the alleys leading up to the market, and many actually still do. But being a public space, the alley offers serious restrictions as a courtship space. And even once all these hurdles are surmounted, <coughs> coordinating rendezvous is often very complicated. Meetings have to be set in advance, or children sent to transmit messages, and so on. So all in all, courtship is usually logistically challenging, mediated, 
and dependent on the initiative of men, but with the entry of mobile phones, as you can imagine, these practices have been revamped. To start, individuals are not are now more easily accessible. Both women and men tend to give out their phone numbers uh, quite freely, but phones don't only make the pursuit of romance logistically simpler, phones also make it a lot more discreet, and this has fundamental implications regarding respectability and the management of multiple relationships. Now, in Liberdad, it's expected, albeit contested, of men to have multiple partners. Um, but having said this, a man who has a wife or a steady girlfriend should find a lover far away and do everything so as not to be discovered. A good partner is not necessarily a faithful one, but rather a discreet one. One who conceals does so because he cares, women often comment, have cynically. Or in the words of Benedita, who was complaining about her womanizing husband, um, she said, our fathers also used to have lovers, but at least they got them far away. Now our husbands go with the neighbors. Women, for their part, are not supposed to have more than one partner, and there is much pressure exerted on young women to keep themselves from marriage. The problem, however, is that men are struggling to support themselves, let alone dependents, and that women are all too aware that married life can be rather dismal. Um, telling me of the, all the young adults I conducted in-depth interviews with, the only ones that described themselves as unhappy were the married women. And extracts of a song uh, by a mother to her daughter. Uh, this song was written um, a generation ago, but it really, I think, eloquently illustrates the tribulations of married life. Um, now, when this song was recorded, women's options were limited. They could have recourse to various pressure tactics or so-called passive resistance, like cooking bland food or refusing to prepare bathwater. But not getting married was not an alternative conceivable or considered by the average woman. The dissolution of patrilocal residence patterns so central to patrilineal groups in the region is not a new phenomenon. And some of the women I worked with are second, even third generation single mothers raising their own children. But what's different this time around is that being a single mother is not necessarily seen as a misfortune, for women with Bizan at least. And a number of young women have come to the conclusion that they can have a more fulfilling lifestyle by engaging in relationships with various men, rather than by saving themselves for marriage. And they've developed crafty ways to use their sexuality as a monnaie d'échange. Um, such relationships are referred to as shulal relationships, which means taking advantage of someone economically under sexual pretenses. And it's usually something women do to men. A shulal relationship is somewhat distinct um, from a transactional sexual relationship uh, described, for example, by Mark Hunter in South Africa or Jennifer Cole in Madagascar. <coughs> in the sense that the terms of the exchange are more ambiguous and the outcome more uncertain. Women's access to uh, material gain in shulal relationships rests on the pretense of an exchange uh, of sexual services which may or may not materialize. And as a young woman explained, 
Shular is a game. If you don't want to give sex, all you need to know is how to talk to close the man's eyes. All you need is visant. Indeed, a woman with visant manages to receive drinks, phone credit, clothing, sometimes money, while only occasionally giving. But you've guessed it, in addition to visant, owning a phone, a mobile phone also helps. And phone etiquette uh, in Liberdad tends to reproduce gendered ideals of the man as provider and of the woman as dependent. In fact, men are expected to cover most of the cost of communicating with women, who for their part can attempt to reverse the charges either by sending a beep, which is uh, the equivalent of a flash in West Africa, um, uh, calling someone and hanging up before the other person answers, or sending a free please call me messages, which is uh, a message that most uh, mobile phone providers offer. Usually you have 10 a day where you can send um, without any top-up, uh, a free mes uh, message asking to be called back. And most of the men I worked with, uh, well, most of the women I worked with would send these please call me messages or beeps to lovers and suitors on a regular basis, sometimes exceeding their uh, free uh, daily allowances of 10 please call me messages. And men usually, if they had credits in their phone, would usually reply to these messages and reported being feeling stressed in situations uh, when they had no credit to do so. Uh, to convince me of how easy it was to get things with her phone, Fifi, a 25-year-old woman, once made a demonstration. And she started by sending a beep to one of her suitors. And a couple of seconds later, um, the man called her. And then she complained about not having bread at home. And um, Within an hour, the man was at the door with uh, two loaves of bread. When he left, um, Fifi giggled and said, men believe that it's with patience that one wins victory. <laughs> <laughs> now, not only had he paid for the bread, he had also paid for the call asking for the bread. Now, the point I want to make is that in Liberdad, no one denies that there always were women willing to exchange sexual services for material gain, um, and that there were women with multiple partners. But many consider that mobile phones are amplifying the trend. With mobile phones, Shular is no longer just a game, it's a sport, is what a young man <laughs> in a debate I organized concluded. And people use the word sport in reference to any activity that's done in excess. Others underscored that they saw the spread. They saw a spread of practices that used to be the preserve of a specific kind of woman. Um, as another young man explained, he says there are two categories of girls: girls to marry and girls to play with. But the problem is that girls these days are very clever with their mobile phones and all, and we end up not knowing which is which. <laughs> so, equipped with a phone. A young woman can ease her socioeconomic marginalization without being despised as a loose woman, whilst a young man can better juggle conflicting ideals of the potent African male and of the modern thoughtful man by keeping certain secrets secret. But there's an important caveat, and that's like fences, phones often provide only a false sense of privacy. Phones might help conceal secrets, but they can just as easily reveal them by providing proof of unfaithfulness through intercepted phone calls or text messages. 
Like tracks in the sand, information found in call logs and other phone folders can act as evidence of secretive activities. And the problem with intercepted phone calls is that they provide proof of deceit which, due to its materiality, cannot as easily be denied as rumors. And I won't go into the details of intimate conflicts here, but what I wish to point out instead is that phone etiquette indicates a mindful attempt to keep secrets secret. So um, young people have developed various strategies to minimize the risks of getting caught. Okay? Um, so the idea is really to, to preserve, preserve secrets. If partners sometimes inspect each other's phone, phones, um, a phone investigation in Liberdad is certainly not as pronounced um, as reported in other places, for example in Jamaica in uh, Heather Horst and Danny Miller's research. Liberdad residents see themselves as civilized, which is a recurrent theme in uh, identity discourses, and they describe phone investigation as something someone without education would do. Many claim to obey a strict no-touching-the-other's phone rule with their partners, a rule which rests uh, more on respect than on trust. But more than anything, it really reflects a certain acceptance of existing social contradictions in an attempt to prevent or at least minimize conflict. Whether the rule is respected is obviously hard to tell, so most regularly clear their call logs and other folders as a precautionary measure. For example, 22-year-old Balsa regularly emptied her inbox and argued that this way her boyfriend might be suspicious. Why would someone with nothing to hide delete all messages? but that at least he had no, no concrete evidence on which to base his suspicion. Explaining how they deal with jealousy, young women commonly say that if you seek, you find. In other words, women are aware that their partner is likely to have other partners and that if they set out to look for proof, they're bound to find some. But so long as they can turn a blind eye, this is what they tend to do. The phone is an imperfect technology of control and evasion, but as young adults gain a better mastery of the technology, the phone helps conceal more than it reveals. And I think it's fair to say that the discretion granted by mobile phone communication, even in its imperfections, has important implications in a context where privacy is scarce and where growing uncertainty has widened the gap between ideals of respect and actual practices. Of course, no one is entirely <coughs> oblivious to what happens under the cover of text messaging. The wife knows that her husband cheats on her, the mother knows that her young daughter is involved with older men, and the sister knows that her brother sells stolen goods every now and then. But by being hidden, it makes it possible for those who choose to, to feign ignorance. And in Michael Tausig's words, one comes to know what not to know in order to be. So to come back to the Machiavelli family, the family directly benefits from the daughter's nocturnal activities when she comes back with ingredients to cook a nice breakfast. But for them to be able to quietly sit around at the table without asking questions, there has to have been an, an effort to conceal the sources of the ingredients. So in other words, the phone helps preserve this important public secret about the changing moral economy. <coughs> By increasing privacy, 
mobile phone mediated relationships allow individuals to carry on with their daily lives without having to address the unsettling social implications of these transformations. Transformations that are ironically amplified by mobile phone use. Um, this interactional collusion, to borrow Joanna Davidson's expression, thus permits conflicting social forces to coexist. And as an inebriated young man put it during a monologue in a bar, lying exists to facilitate the propagation of the human race. Um, but I wouldn't dare conclude on such a crude functionalist note. Um, so this is where the politics of respect and the, this idea of cruising come in. In Liberdad, more than ever, one, respect is gauged by one's ability to maintain appearances and ultimately by one's skills as dissimulation. In fact, discretion and respect are often used interchangeably. As I was repeatedly told, to conceal is respect, and telling lies is therefore somewhat acceptable, whilst truthfulness has little value and is unlikely to be used in a confession absolution fashion so central to Christian ethics. Some lies conceal important things. Individuals lie about where they're going or where they've been, um, often because the truth would likely land them into trouble. But other lies are more trivial and appear more inconsequential. And in such cases, individuals lie in order for others not to know what they're up to, to create remoteness. In fact, I was constantly reminded that all is not what it seems, and this is a theme that anthropologists working in various regions, but uh, particularly in West Africa, have explored <coughs> quite extensively. And the literature on secrecy, which draws inspiration from Zimmel's idea that secrecy engenders this second world or second level of reality, which exists in simultaneous dialogue with the other, with the manifest world. Now, Display and disguise, revelation and concealment work in tandem as secrets redraw material and imagined boundaries and participate in the reproduction, or in this case, in the subversion of socioeconomic hierarchies. Some lies are also designed to make one's life appear more exciting than it actually is, or at least less painful. Because young people in Liberdad alternate more or less regularly between states of extreme destitution and sudden access to resources. But more often than not, living is experienced as rather painful and stressful. Samo, a 27-year-old student who lost his leg after stepping on a landmine, provided a poignant assessment of contemporary realities. In his words, he said, the war justified everything, but now that we have peace, how are we supposed to make sense of all this nonsense? Every day when I wake up, I'm preoccupied about all the things I need but I can't get. It's even worse, the stress. During the school holidays, I have nothing to do but think. Over there in developed countries, people talk about more important things. Here, because of poverty, we're stuck talking about basic stuff. We still worry about what we're going to eat. Now, one with Vizan knows how to alleviate this pain, this stress. Uh, in practical terms by activating social networks, by participating in criminal activities and so on. But one with Vizan also knows how to ease this pain by putting up a facade, by making it appear as though all is fine. And this is really the crux of my argument. 
Uh, and if Inyamban youth go out of their way to try and conceal what they do and what they have, secrecy is just as importantly designed to conceal what they lack. And this brings me back to the concept of social navigation with which I started, and which has been useful, I think, to make sense of everyday life in Liberdad. But in the light of my presentation, I think it could do with a slight rethinking. Now, Vig states that although social navigation is not exclusively applicable to contexts of social turmoil, the concept is still tailored um, to contexts in which everyday life is experienced and carried out in survival mode. Indeed, social navigation evokes troubled waters, jerky movements, staccato rhythm, and these are images that don't always gel with the experiences of individuals subjected to structural rather than physical violence. What's more, I've showed how secrecy was integral to the ways in which individuals navigate everyday life, and Vizan is precisely about the ability to capitalize on seeing while playing on the visions of others. And this is something that social navigation captures, but only imperfectly. In this case, it might therefore be more accurate to think of social navigation in terms of a cruise. To start, cruising connotes a certain hedonism, and it thus provides an idiom to think beyond an understanding of youth social practices in terms of coping strategies. Although daily life is often described as a battle, which involves a fair share of ingenuity as one struggles to survive, one also manages to have a good time, to enjoy life, to feel alive, however fleetingly. More importantly, however, the ideal cruise is one that reaches a perfect balance between displaying enough without revealing too much, one that projects the right image. To paraphrase Riesman, like a good party, it involves a subtle balance between maintaining decorum and letting go of inhibitions, all with an air of effortless grace. A cruise also hinges on the double motion of actors and of the environment within which they move. But in keeping with the seafaring register, it conveys the image of individuals riding the wave rather than <coughs> fighting the storm. Now to embark on this cruise, the phone is by no means necessary. It does, however, play a fundamental part in the way young people navigate the uncertainties of everyday life in Liberdad at the moment, or the last time I checked. Mm -hmm.